So we are finally getting started on the Four Noble Truths. And today we'll just look at the first one. The four, if you're not familiar with them, the first is that in life there is suffering. Uh, the Pali word for it is dukkha. Uh, it's a useful word because um, it means actually a whole lot more than our English understanding of the word suffering. Um, suffering kind of sounds like that, that heavy-ended side of things, but dukkha actually refers all the way to the underlying dis-ease or dissatisfaction um, um, that can just be in a moment. Uh, so I like that word dukkha. Um, the second is there's a cause for our suffering, for the arising of dukkha. Uh, and in um, the, this tradition, it's clinging. The third is that there is a way out. There is a path through what we are experiencing. And the fourth is the eightfold path, the way, the way through, um, the way to meet the reality of what's here in such a path that, that brings relief um, from dukkha. So this first one, uh, suffering is a part of life. On the surface of it, it seems very simple and kind of easy to open our eyes and look at the world and know, well, yeah, that's the truth. But it is endlessly complex and liberating to consider just layers and layers and layers of what does it mean when we come to a full acceptance that this is a natural part of life. So there, there's just endless things I could offer around this. And this is just truly a small collection of thoughts around it. A book I highly recommend uh, uh, on the Four Noble Truths, if you get interested in this and you want more, Philip Moffat's book, Dancing, um, Dancing with Life, phenomenally beautiful, wondrous, readable book. Highly, highly recommended. And I like one of the things he says about this first noble truth is that when he first started working with the Four Noble Truths, he thought of them as the three noble truths and the one awful one. And once he started actually um, um, interacting with this truth of suffering as a part of life, he began to finally hear it is a noble truth as well. So I want to actually start with a story. I'm sure if you've ever taken a class with me, you've heard this story before. It's one I, I share not infrequently because it had such a profound impact on my life. Uh, it was really a spiritual gift uh, somebody gave to me years and years ago that I've just never, ever forgotten. When I was in college, I spent a summer in Kolkata working with Mother Teresa sisters, and I worked in a place called Kaligat, Home for the Deaf and Dying. And there was one day there, 
um, that I walked in, the um, Kaligat was run by Sister Luke, who was this wondrous um, army general. <laughs> I mean, she she had that place. She had that place working, and and if Sister Luke told you to do something, you did it. So I walked through the door one morning, and Sister Luke saw me walking through the door, and instantly, Lindsay, <laughs> there is a man in bed twelve, and he will not eat. Go make him eat. You know, so I, I knew what my charge was um, for the moment. I went off and I got a plate of food, uh, a spoon, and I went to find um, the man in bed 12. I'd never seen him before. He was somebody they found on the sidewalks uh, during the night and had brought in. He was the medical definition of cachexia. If you don't know what that word means, it means extreme starvation. Uh, literally nothing left but skin and bones. I had never seen somebody at that state before, even working there. And he had this long flowing white hair and he had these eyes that were profoundly awake and at peace. I could feel his presence. And I knew, I just remember having this immediate thought of, if he doesn't want to eat, he's not going to eat. <laughs> I sat down and Sister Luke had told me what to do. So I sat down next to him. I, you know, offered up a spoon of rice, held out my bowl and offered a spoon of rice. <clears throat> and he looked at me and he said in perfect English, no, dear, I don't need it. I'm going to die tomorrow. Me at 19, 20, whatever age, and never having had someone say something like that to me before, I didn't know what to do with that. I, I, don't, I don't honestly remember what I said, but I'm sure it was something like, well, don't you want some rice to go with that? You know, <laughs> and some rice, more rice. And it was just very clear that between the two of us, I was the one with need, not him. And he reached out and he took my hand and he stroked my hand and he said, no, dear, you don't understand. Everything is fine. I'm gonna die tomorrow. Then I got it. I got the gift that there was a way in which no matter the condition of his body, from his accent, you know, he was obviously somebody that at some point in his life had had family, money, education, whatnot, all of that gone. No matter the condition of his body, no matter whatever losses may have been in his life, there was a way in which he was totally, totally fine. Never, ever forgotten that gift. And I really, I think about it um, a lot, actually. Some of the pieces that come up for me one is the importance of a dedication of a life. 
he clearly was somebody, you know, my guess is that he was a sadhu, somebody who had chosen to renounce the worldly things uh, and, and dedicated his whole life on a spiritual journey. He was somebody who had tremendous practice to get to the place where he was when I met him. And that that had um, allowed him a remarkable peace that he could freely share with others. I went up to Sister Luke, I never forget this part, I went up to Sister Luke afterwards and I said he didn't want to eat. And Sister Luke took my hand and she said, I understand. He's really peaceful, isn't he? I had never seen Sister Luke quite like that either. She had clearly been touched um, as well. So if we want the possibilities of this path, we have to dedicate a part of ourselves, whether it's the full part as him or whatever part we have available. That dedication to this path matters. Another part that I think about with him is the difference between pain and suffering. Probably wasn't until medical school when we were studying cachexia that I realized, wow, his body was probably in a lot of pain. I have to say, he was so profoundly peaceful. I didn't see it. The idea of being able to be in pain, whether emotional or physical, and be at peace. That's a radical orientation that I have to say I've now met many times in my life. It's really helpful to know that both of those things can be true. I can have pain and I can be at peace and neither one negates the other. That's really useful in a world that is challenging, complex and full of pain and dukkha. The third thing I'm gonna share around that gift is the way we get to that is by orienting a life towards meaningfulness, towards what really, really matters in our life. I like one of the other things Philip Moffat says in his book. It, he says that we often make the mistake of thinking that the opposite of suffering is happiness. It's not. <laughs> What this man in Calcutta really shared with me was something far more rich and far more complicated than straightforward happiness. And when we have a life with a prime objective of personal happiness, we really are cutting ourselves off at the knees. It can only get us so far in a world where suffering the first noble truth is a natural part of life. And so if we are to engage with the wholeness of life, we need some orientation that allows us to engage deeply with the fact of suffering, with the fact of dukkha. A life oriented towards meaning, on the other hand, 
gives us endless opportunities for continual opening, endless opportunities. So the key to this, which is another thing that just, um, I remember so strongly about that gift is being in touch with a felt sense of meaningfulness, sacredness of the moment now. That offers us this very radical path possible for being able to meet the pain in all of life that arises physical, emotional, without contracting into suffering. It's kind of like the key piece here. It's not that we're trying to get rid of pain. We can't, that, that life doesn't exist, but we can meet it without contracting into suffering. So I wanna look at these a little bit. The first is that difference between pain and suffering. One, and it's really helpful. It's very helpful to have a practical working idea of different kinds of pain or suffering. One way that these are often distinguished or looked at is that um, you can define pain as what is unavoidable, suffering as what we add on top to it, on top of it. And we can learn to avoid. Uh, Philip Moffat's book, uh, he gives an example from Helen Luke, the Jungian psychologist. I'm sure some of you have read her. Um, remarkable uh, um, thinker, observer of the nature of mind and, and human life. And what he notes is that what she's describing in Western um, psychological language really is the same thing as the first noble truth, the same basic wisdom. So she identifies what she calls two kinds of suffering. The one you are to bear and the other you are to abandon. The one to be born, she calls essential suffering, meaning the objective experiences of pain and loss. The suffering we are to let go of is the neurotic, inferior, or narcissistic sufferings. And that is all of our subjective reactions to the realities of loss, to the realities of anxiety, to the realities of disappointment. So uh, Moffat says of her definition that this, this idea of essential suffering is really the willing, conscious acceptance of dukkha as a part of being human. So in other words, there is this radical acceptance that there will be pain, that there will be suffering in life. Whatever word, dukkha, whatever word you want to use for it. And the work is not to escape this. The work instead is how do I learn to meet it? And, and be with it here and now in a way that matters and opens my life instead of contracts it down. So really, how do I get to that third noble truth, which I like the way Sylvia Bordenstein defines. She says it this way, peace is possible in the middle of a complicated life, 
the mind can remain at ease. That's what I want. The ability to be at ease in a way that allows my most responsive self to open up and meet whatever pain my own or others in this complicated life in a way that matters. And this knowing what we need to bear and how to bear it and knowing what we need to let go of and how to let go of it. That's the key. I want to give one more example of this difference between, you can call it pain and suffering or essential suffering and subjective suffering, whatever way you want to look at it, what is um, unavoidable and what is avoidable. When I was a family practice resident out in New Mexico, I did my residency in a training program that did a lot of OB. Uh, I delivered a lot, a lot of babies. <laughs> um, and I learned a lot about what different ways are that we can approach birthing babies. My babies, mine came through the airport. Um, mine didn't come through the birth canal here. So, you know, everything I'm saying is just from experiential witnessing, not living through. Um, and I'm sure that maybe there's some other mothers out there who can say, and you left out this, um, or plenty of other things around it. But here's what I observed in delivering a lot of babies. There were some women who just hated it. I mean, fought tooth and nail, the pain of labor. And what I found really quickly is that it is just darn hard to get a baby out when you are fighting it tooth and nail. <laughs> that, that contraction against the contraction made it, it even harder for, for that, that, that baby to come through. Then there were the women who had this idea that this was about birthing their baby. This was, this was, um, this was sacred and <laughs> it darn hurt a lot. And so at least they had like this intention of, I want to meet this well, but they didn't really have the training of how to do it that fact of having the intention of, I want to work with it, that changed the experience from those ones that just, I mean, I had one, it was 16 year old girl, which is very sad, but one, you know, one, one um, woman yelling, get this thing out of me now. You know, there's just <laughs> being able to step out of that mindset, at least into the intention of, I want to meet it well. That shifted things. And we need training. We don't, you know, we don't in our society learn how to meet this stuff. So even with the best intention, it was still really hard at times to stay with the process of giving birth in a way that complicated the process of giving birth. And then there were 
a handful of women who came in either trained, like they had practiced, they were ready, they knew how to meet their bodies and the, and the pain of giving birth, or they just instinctually, they had grown up in some way that they understood how to let go with the flow of giving birth. Those women, they were remarkable. And it wasn't that their labor pains were any less intense. I mean, labor pain, you talk to any woman who actually has gone through it, it hurts. <laughs> it wasn't that they had any less intense pain. It was that they had a profound way to meet the pain of what was happening and ride the ups and downs of it um, that was beautiful to watch. You know, I remember being in some of those rooms where like the medical personnel and the family, you know, everyone was just kind of like standing back in awe and um, only reaching in <laughs> when the woman like needed or asked or, or whatnot, because um, um, she was doing her work in a way that was um, beautiful to, to, to see. So, you know, maybe it's, you might say, well, that's easier to have pain of giving birth when you're gonna have a baby out of it. Um, but I've seen people ride the ups and downs, the, the deep pains of life that haven't been involved in giving birth. I've seen people do it with dying. Um, I've seen people do it with very severe, hard diagnoses. Um, I've seen people do it in, in situations like being in jail. Um, people have this capacity, us humans, of being able to meet what's deeply painful in a way that can transform our possibility of awakening to the fullness of life right out of what can sometimes be the most hard thing. And we practice for this. We need to prepare ourselves if we really want to have that skill set available to us. Uh, and we do it by looking for the little moments in life, the small day-to-day. -day. It doesn't have to be as dramatic as giving birth or dying. Um, it can be just those little moments of standing in a grocery line and catching the impatience that arises and allowing, Helen Luke calls it, standing under the waterfall allowing a moment of standing under the waterfall of impatience in a way that allows something to settle and open in a different way. Just wanna share, I had one small moment the other day that was very simple, very helpful. Um, a daughter said something to me in a way that uh, was clearly expressing her peeved um, um, sense at me. <laughs> and I caught it before opening my mouth and had this moment of being able to open to what was like this little waterfall of hurt without contracting into what the amygdala wanted to do, which was fight and defend and say, well, no, you got that wrong. I didn't blah, 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 you know? And so just, and of course we don't want to stand there 
the, the instinct is to bounce out. But when the more we learn to stand there, we learn to find that that standing in even that little moment of fire, it does transform something. And that standing there with acknowledgement of, ouch, that, that had some steam to it. And I'm feeling it. That, be, without contracting them to the story of, you shouldn't, um, that transformed into, oh, wow, I bet she's feeling some sting right now, too. And from that place of being able to understand that it was directed at me out of her sting, totally changed what came out of my mouth. And it became a really sweet moment instead of one of those moments that the parent then regrets later. So I'm going to finish with a quote from Philip Moffat. These descriptions speak to the capacity of fully consciously receiving life as it is. To voluntarily receive the distress of life and mindfully bear it with consciousness and compassion. That is a critical threshold for spiritual development. It is a vital first step and it empowers all further unfolding. It is both absolutely ordinary and mystically transforming. This choice gives your life meaning. And ironically, it also gives meaning to your suffering, transforming it from being senseless to being a crucial part of your liberation. This is the beauty of the insights of the first noble truth. So let's sit for a minute. Just notice whatever is coming up in your body, mind, and heart in this moment. What is it like to voluntarily receive the fullness of the moment of consciousness and compassion just as it is? Thank you. <laughs>